Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 31, through chapter 5, verse 11. Again, that's Acts 4, 31 through 5, 11. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Holy Trinity downtown. Very excited to be with you this morning. Thank you to the musicians who have led us this morning. Uh, thank you to all of you community group leaders who serve in different ways for our church. I'm very excited about the text that we have before us this morning. Spectacular text on God's power working in the local church. And um, I'm recording this on Saturday morning. And so the re results of the election are not yet known. But let's continue to be in prayer for our country, but also in particular for the people of God to be people of peace and kindness and generosity and truthfulness uh, in, in the days to come. A number of years ago, my son Josh, who's 18 years old now, and I worked our way through a number of uh, film genres, a little bit of boxing, some of those classics, and then uh, also some of the Westerns. And we got to that particular subgenre of film called the Spaghetti Western. Um, Sergio Leone, as you may know, had a trilogy, an Italian filmmaker called the Dollars Trilogy, a fistful of dollars, but it 
contained within it uh, the movie The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And of course, uh, Clint Eastwood stars in that movie uh, as The Good. And then you have uh, Lee Van Cleef as The Bad and Eli Wallach as The Ugly. And uh, it's, and it's in that kind of epic filmmaking genre, so this kind of vast scope to it. Well, today what we're gonna see is the church up close and personal. We're going to see the, the good and the beautiful. We're going to see what it looks like for God's power to work in it, but we're also going to see the underside of the church as well. And what the author Luke is doing is he has offered us a couple of almost seemingly idealized pictures of the church, but what he really wants us to see is how, what they say in harvest time, where there's a lot of wheat, there's also a lot of chaff. There's some chaff that we will find here that in our text, chapter four and chapter five, we'll find generosity and greed contrasted with one another. We'll see boldness in evangelism and boldness in deceit as well. We'll see life and even death. So we bow with me and join me in prayer today and ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the apostles who proclaimed with such clarity and such boldness after um, Christ was raised from the dead and after they, they met together in prayer in this text. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us great wisdom as we approach this text and that you'd change our church because of it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to break the text just into two parts, uh, chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, and then chapter 5, 1 to 11. Uh, chapter 4, 32 to 37 is really the good of the church. I have many fond memories of this text because one of my mentors, uh, Kent Hughes, preached on this text twice in Holy Trinity's history. One of those times was in 1998 in May when... 37 adults were being sent out and commissioned to plant Holy Trinity Church and the series of churches that we've helped to, to uh, initiate. He preached it then and called it When the Church is Great, but he also preached it at our 20-year uh, reunion uh, in, in 2018, which was at Rockefeller Chapel, and it was a great day. Uh, all four of the congregations of Holy Trinity Church came together and streamed together. And there was just a great sense of celebration. And Kent spoke on that day of when the church is great. And that's what you see in this little section here, verses 32 to 37. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the church that we should all aspire to. And, and the theme that Ken introduces is right on, because if you look at verse 33, and do keep your Bibles open if you would, uh, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving the, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The word great is used there twice in verse 33. It's, it's a word that we get our word mega from. So the, the, it's, it's a kind of mega power in their preaching and a kind of mega grace that the people of God had received. And one, one way to think of it is that the church at, uh, in that time was filled with this grace and power, and the grace was a movement in deeds 
And the grace was also manifested in word as well. So the church was great in both word and power. John Stott, the, the British preacher who was in London for many years, points out uh, this distinction of the church being great in both word and deed. And he says that the apostles were, were giving to their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with this great power. And let me just say a, a word on that for a moment. Perhaps you have heard the word being preached at some time with great power. When all seems quiet, when it seems as if the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to you and pricking your heart, something was happening in the New Testament church where as the word was going out, it was going out with this great power. And it does come, keep in mind, from, from the previous verse, chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, And when they had gathered, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a sign of the Holy Spirit, is this great proclamation power that they had in this day, but also this great grace that's kind of mixed into their church. So we're going to look at that together. So what are the characteristics of this church in the last section of Acts chapter 4? The first thing that you see in verse 32 is that they had a, a tremendous unity of heart. I want to show that to you. I want you to see that. Look at verse 32. Keep your Bibles open, please. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but had everything in common. And uh, if you turn just back a few, on the same page, actually, in my Bible, in chapter four, verse four, it says that, that, that those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So this is a very large community of people. And the Holy Spirit had done something to really unify them. And this is such a gift when this happens, when, when churches are, are unified, not necessarily that everyone thinks politically say in the same way, but that there's a great sense of affection and deference for one another and love for one another. It's something powerful when our souls and, and hearts are, are knit together. Paul charges the Philippians. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, and it has that same kind of idea. Think of great teams, teams that win uh, championships in a variety of sports. They, they tend to have this ability to function as one, where no one is putting themselves forward as the most powerful person. This unity here matches what we see in Acts uh, chapter 2, 42 to 47. And so what Luke is doing is saying, look, when the Holy Spirit came in chapter 2, it had this sense of unity in the church. There came the sense of unity in the church. In the same in chapter 4, when the Holy Spirit comes after their prayer, deep unity. Secondly, besides deep unity, there's also deep generosity, this attitude of generosity. Look at the end of verse 32, which I just read. It said, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but had everything in common. Now, this is really interesting because it says no one said that they did. They still owned the things that they had, but they treated them not as if it belonged merely to them, but as if it belonged to God and to the community. This is a, this is a radical attitude, okay? This is not a state-contrived or a state-mandated sense of unity. It's voluntary. It's heartfelt. 
And it's a movement of the Spirit of God. If you want to know what authentic Christianity really looks like, it has this deep sense of unity and this deep sense of generosity, but also this deep sense of witness, which is what we see in verse 33, which I've already referenced. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them. This idea that that they are uh, speak giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus doesn't mean that that's the only thing that they're talking about. But this is the linchpin of, of all that hap- has ever happened in history. Um, the, word, the word testimony in this text where it says, and the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, is that it's related to the same word in Acts 1.8 when Jesus gives this promise, when he says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what he's saying there is that um, they will be testifying. They will, they will not only testify, but they will be witnesses themselves. One of the roles of the apostles that is listed in Acts chapter 1, verse 22, is this. It says that they must become a witness to the resurrection. These are people who had seen Jesus risen from the dead and they are testifying to it. So the resurrection, friends, from a Christian perspective, but really from a historical perspective, is the pivotal event in all of history. Think of it. No disease can put Jesus back in the ground. No disaster can take away Jesus's victory. No death will ever capture him again, and he is risen. In fact, it is his resurrection from the dead that creates their unity. It is his resurrection from the dead from which their generosity flowed. This is a new life that comes because the Spirit comes as a gift of the resurrection. And the power of his resurrection is what gives the apostles their power in the proclamation because they believe it. Luke doesn't stop there. Great unity, great generosity, great proclamation or great witness. And then verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Uh, Luke, the good doctor who has written this, may be implying that it's the grace of God, his favor. And that's very true. You can see that here. But it also probably means that there's favor with others as well. There's favor in the community because of the way these people are living. So their uni- their, this radical unity that they have uh, doesn't stay merely an attitude, but it really flows into a kind of action, which is what we see in verse 34 being described. So now look at what verse 34 says. It says, there was not a needy person among them. What a description for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Is that not extraordinary? Friends, will you pray with us that God would give us this kind of grace within our church, this kind of attitude among us, that that needs may be met by others, physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. And part of what has to happen in in, in doing that is that we all begin to face outward towards others, 
rather than facing inwards towards ourselves and begin to take care of others. So we pray for such actions among us. John Stott has a couple clarifying things that he says here that I think are, are helpful in terms of how much of an obligation this is. He says, nor can we say that the Jerusalem church being filled with the spirit laid down a kind of obligatory model, a kind of primitive communism, which God wants all spirit-filled communities to copy. In fact, think how uh, corrupt and cultish it would be if the communities that we were a part of require this or demanded this of one another. Um, Stock goes on, he says, the fact that the selling and giving were voluntary is enough to dispose of this idea that it is obligatory. What we surely must do, it's not that he says we shouldn't follow it, but he wants to get at the heart, really. What we surely must do is to note and to seek to imitate the care of the needy and the sacrificial generosity which the Holy Spirit created. So, Holy Trinity, what kind of people do we want to be in the days to come? What does authentic Christianity really mean? Now, let me just say one personal word. Uh, my wife, Amy, has been on treatment these last three weeks for, for leukemia. And uh, over the last 22 years, we've tried to be as hospitable as possible and to have people in our homes on every opportunity. In fact, for many, many years, any person who is new, we tried to invite them into our home. Um, we can't do that anymore. We can't do that. Amy and I can't because of COVID partially, but also because of her illness. And what's happened is for us is we've <laughs> now are experienced this in tremendous pouring out of generosity towards us through people, very kindly and carefully preparing meals, dropping off flowers and things like that. And we feel just saturated with the love of God, saturated with his grace, saturated with your generosity. So let me just say from the bottom of my heart and for Amy as well, thank you so much for desiring to live a life of generosity and unity. Uh, may may this be, may these things be characteristics of our church unity and generosity, but also proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. May it be uh, a way of life. I watched a, a movie, a documentary recently called um, "America Lost," and it's about three urban communities in North America: Youngstown, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, and one other. And it just shows how this. The loss of industrial jobs has really decimated these communities, but also how the ones who are remaining really are, are people of faith who are providing hope and providing family structure for others. And uh, it's really tragic to see how um, even uh, post-industrial Chicago has been destroyed by many loss of many jobs. Of course, there's many other things, but the beauty of what community can do when it seeps into um, a neighborhood or a town or an area and really holds everything together. Is this not what our city needs? Uh, and then there's one last little note here, which is that Barnabas is introduced and he's introduced in part to begin to contrast him with Ananias. Uh, I love Barnabas. His name, is, as it says in the text, means son of encouragement. It's probably his nickname. He's one of those guys that whenever you're around him, you're like, don't you just feel encouraged when this, when this guy's around? And Joseph is around is what they call him. 
He's uh, one of the ones later, he's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. He's one of the ones who gets Paul after Paul is con converted in Acts chapter nine and brings him to the other apostles. Um, when, the, when the first Gentile church is planted in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is the one who goes there and kind of checks things out and then goes and brings Paul, who's a very strong teacher to the church. In Acts 13, Barnabas is one of the ones who's part of the prayer meeting of five that really launches the mission of the church forward. And it's Paul and Barnabas that are set aside by the spirit to uh, do the work that God had for them to do. Well, in this case, he, uh, he he's from Cyprus, which is a, an island not very far, or not very far off the coast um, from Jerusalem. He sold a field that belonged to them, brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. Now, why did, he, why did he do that? It's because he is a son of encouragement and he wanted to use his wealth to encourage the, uh, the rest in the community and to, to move the mission of the gospel forward. Unity, generosity, proclamation, and encouragement. May we be this kind of church. Let me close this little section with a quote from Calvin. Calvin says, in this place, that is in this text, three things are commended, that the faithful were with one mind, that there was mutual partaking of good among them, and then I love this part, that the apostles behaved themselves stoutly in announcing the resurrection of Christ. They, they behaved themselves stoutly. Brothers and sisters, may we be stout in our proclamation, but also in our generosity and in our unity. Why? Because God, through Jesus, gives great, undeserved grace. All right, that's the good, but that's not the end of the story. Luke wants us to see something else. So we move from a son of encouragement to a son and a daughter of deception. We move from a picture of great generosity to the depths of greed. We really move from, from life to death. So if verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4 are a picture of when the church is great, then chapter 5, 1 to 11 are a picture of when the church is really not so great. What I love about Luke in this, at this point is that he doesn't want to hide the dark underside of the church, which is part of the reason why we know this is kind of credible history. Look at verse 1 then of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So far, so good. But that's what, that's what uh, Barnabas had done also. And that's what many in the community had done. Problem comes in verse two, if you look at it. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it to the apostles' feet. Now, some scholars believe that actually he had like committed in a contract to bring all of these uh, proceeds forward. We don't have any knowledge of that from the text and that he voluntarily held some back. But Peter, uh, in in only having been in, in kind of post-resurrection leadership for a short time, is prompted by the Spirit. And for, for modern Christians, uh, listening to Peter's words, living in a sort of secular culture, they're striking. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie with, to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Of the lands. Now, what Peter is calling out, or what he disputes, is not whether Ananias should have sold the property, 
or kept the property, it was his. And the New Testament, again, does not dispute the concept of ownership of private property. But before the before he sold it, it was his. After he sold it, it was his. So says verse four, listen to verse four. While it remained unsold, did it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it, and here's the, here's the kicker, is why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? The issue is greed and deception. Listen to what he says, for you have not lied to man, but to God. And uh, this is striking because it takes the words of that we use so seriously, particularly in the church, because the lie to God was actually a lie to the people of God. And Ananias was doing something to try to enhance, knowingly with his wife, to enhance his character by making it seem as if he had brought more to them than he he did, and, and the deception of Ananias then leads tragically and horrifyingly and uh, remarkably, really, to his death in the next little section. Verse 5, listen to what it says. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. Can you imagine being there? <laughs> if, if you saw the power of the word in the previous section in proclamation, here you see the power of the word God doesn't even do anything outwardly. There's no, as Calvin points out, there's no sword that is raised here. There's no bolt of lightning. It's just Peter's words. And then he falls down dead. So just let that sink in for a moment, if you would, okay? Where the grace of God was so powerful in the church in the previous section that led to the, what seemed like this almost effortless generosity. Here, the greed of the world is so strong on Ananias that it led to his death. Friends, be sure of this, that God does judge sin. And we have, I think, in some ways distorted who God is. It's the picture that we see of his great grace and generosity Yes, in chapter four, but also his terrifying judgment that just pause for a moment and realize that we serve a holy, holy God. And you pick up this in Psalm two that they were meditating on in the prayer meeting at the end of chapter four, just before our last section. They read Psalm two, but when you get to the, the last three verses of Psalm two, it speaks of coming before God and the king with reverence of kissing the sun. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to read part of that text for, for a moment here. It says uh, in Psalm 2, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Listen to this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. That's a great summary, actually, of the application of this text. Let there be great rejoicing in the church, but also let there be great trembling. Why? Listen to what it says. Kiss the son lest you be angry and you perish in the way. Which is exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in this section. Friends, God is not a God that you can sort of slip in your pocket. He's not like some kind of slender visa to pull from our wallets and insert into our prayer life when we need something. Behold, 
This is the creator God that's referenced in verse 24 of the previous chapter and the king that's mentioned in Psalm 2, but he's also a judge. Paul puts it this way, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter four, we see the beauty of what eternal life looks like lived out in community, but we also see here the wages of sin being death. What do you think our response should be to this second section? It's pretty clear in verse five. It says, and great fear came upon all who heard it. This is repeated in verse 11 when Ananias' wife perpetuates the lie and conceals the greed. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Friends, truly encountering the creator God of the universe, who is also the judge, means and coming with great gladness, but it also means coming with a gravity, a sense of gravity about our own sin as we come before him. It's about both the proclamation of the gospel and the purity of the church. There's a place in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that combines this sense of gladness and kind of gravity that I think you're pick, we would pick up in this passage. And what happens is when Lucy first goes to Narnia, she meets Tumnus, this fawn. And then when the rest of the children come back, they find that Tumnus's uh, home where Lucy had had tea with him has been completely completely destroyed and, and Tumnus has been arrested by uh, the, the chief of police named Mogram. And uh, it, just the two little sections here. Um, Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And then Lewis describes the response. Uh, it says, none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but it, at that moment that the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it's happened to you sometimes in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which puts the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely one, too lovely to put into words, which makes the whole dream beautiful as well. It's that their first occurrence with, the, with understanding who Aslan is has this kind of dual respect to it. And so then the, the, uh, the children decide that they're going to try to go and rescue Tomnus. And so Peter says, couldn't we have some kind of stratagem? I mean, couldn't we dress up and, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Beaver says to him, it's no good, son of Adam, no good you're trying of all people, but now Aslan is on the move. And Susan says, Aslan, who's Aslan? And listen to this description, I, I think it's beautiful. Mr. Beaver says, why don't you know he's the king? He's the Lord of all the whole wood, but not often here, you understand, not even in my father's time. He is in Narnia at this moment and he'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. <laughs> and then Edmund says of the queen who has been turning people into stone, she won't turn him, that is Aslan, into stone too. And he laughs and says, Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most that she can do and more than I expect of her. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And then Lucy says, 
Is Aslan a man? Aslan a man, said Beaver Street, uh, sternly. Certainly not. And then Susan asked this famous one that you've heard before, probably. Oh, I thought he's a man. Is he quite safe? And then the beaver says, you will, dearie, make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either, either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Peter says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. This is the God that we see pictured in these early chapters of Acts, a good God who bestows his grace but also a holy king that is described in Acts, in, in uh, Psalm chapter two and other places of him striking away sin. So let me just give a couple of applications uh, as we close. One is this, let's cleanse our hearts of our own sin. Let's uh, purify our hearts before him through, through confession. But let's do more than that. Let's understand what sin does to our community as well and, and be candid with one another in the confession of our sin to one another, but also to be candid to one another in seeking to root out sin and speak of the danger of sin. This is why our church is committed to what's called church discipline that begins with the teaching of the gospel, but it moves on to our interpersonal relationships and then sometimes to the discipline of the church. Luke here is showing us a, a picture of the New Testament church, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And authentic Christianity has its flaws for sure, but it worships a holy God. So serve the Lord, but do it with fear. The sons of encouragement will be in the church and may we rise up to be sons and daughters of encouragement, but also be warned that the sons and daughters of greed and deception will be in the church as well. So Holy Trinity this week, may the image of God as this generous one, but also as the judge, grip our hearts. He is all seeing and all knowing. Love you, Holy Trinity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would root out the sin in our hearts. You'd unify us as a church and make us generous, make us bold in our proclamation, Lord, we pray. All of these things in Christ's name, amen.